He couldn't see himself. He couldn't see the woman. He couldn't see the Lord Jesus. He could quickly say, she's a sinner. But he couldn't say, I'm a sinner. And by the way, you do not have to have committed the gravest of sins to love Christ much. All you have to do is have a proper perspective of who God is and who you are. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. Today we enter the last chapter of our study in the book of Romans, chapter 16. And although much of this chapter deals with greetings and salutations, we find within these names not only insight into the people whom the Apostle Paul came in contact, but also a number of important positions that they filled. Let's join Dr. Brogy as he takes a snapshot of God's church. Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Epistle of Paul to the Romans. We've been working our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through this epistle. In just over three years, we've been in it. Believe it or not, we are now at the final chapter, the 16th chapter of Romans. And today, as you can see, the title of the sermon is a snapshot of God's church. Now, this is one of those chapters that you probably don't even remember reading because when you came to it and you saw those names, like many of the genealogies, you just kind of skipped through it and went on. It's very rarely preached on. It's usually glossed over. In fact, most of the commentaries don't really even touch it. We'll be here at least three weeks in this chapter, and it's an important chapter. And I think by the time we are done, if we had to give it a title, when I was in seminary, we had to give a title for every chapter in the Bible. Not the one that the publisher gives, but we had to read the chapter and try to assess it there at Dallas Seminary and put a title on it. And I entitled this passage, There's Plenty of Room in the Family of God. Plenty of room. Now remember the context. Paul has already taken us through the doctrinal section in chapters 1 through 8 where God's righteousness is revealed. He showed us how a righteous God can take unrighteous people and put them in a right standing with himself. Then we looked at chapters 9 through 11 and many of the great prophecies as it concerns the people of Israel. The national section, what's taking place in Israel is really, really important because God is going to finish human history through the people of Israel. And we saw that God's righteousness was vindicated. It was proved that God keeps his promises. When we came to the 12th chapter, 12 through 15 is really the applicational section where God applies His righteousness in our lives as we live it out each day. And here in the conclusion of the book, the 16th chapter, we might even call it the personal section. It's one of the most specific, one of the most extensive, one of the most intimate greetings found anywhere in all of the New Testament. So I want to begin by reading the verses that we will cover today. Romans 16, if you don't bring a Bible to church, you'll get much less out of the sermon. And every week we have visitors who come and don't bring them. And I understand that because you've been in churches your whole life where you don't need one. You need one in this church. It will be like being in a map reading course without a map. You'll get much more out if you have one. But for your benefit, we have some slides in front of you. Romans 16, verse 1. I commend you to our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is in Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life 
risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Epinetus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who are in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Abernus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Heronian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Trophosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persa, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Inflegion, Hermas, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philologos and Julian, Nursus and his sister and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. When the body of Christ, when the people of God, when the church, for the church's people come together, it is to be a place of warmth and affection. We just concluded the passage with a command, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I didn't see any of you do that during the welcome. We're going to talk about how this applies, especially in our day in just a few minutes. But one thing is clear, that when God's people came together, there was warmth, there was affection in the early church. And people come to church and they look for a touch of kindness, and very often they never find it. I read this week about a homeless man in a large city, down apparently on life, his clothes were worn out, his shoes were leaking in the snow, and as he walked down the street, he, he looked through the glass of a secondhand bookstore, and he saw there on the shelf a book, and it said, How to Hug. And he thought, that's what I need, that's for me. So he went into the bookstore, and, and he grabbed the book, only to find that it was the 11th volume in the encyclopedia, covering from How to hug. And he was disappointed. And, and many people, I suppose, are like that when they come to evangelical churches. They come with a sense of expectation, with a sense of wanting to find some honest human care and touch. But they only meet some kind of encyclopedic, theoretical type of love. Now, when people come to church, they don't need some kind of sticky emotionalism. That's sickening. They need genuine affection found in Christ. You know, many a Sunday, especially after the second service, when I don't have to rush up and do another baptism, I look around and I see people talking and hugging and embracing one another, and it, it just makes my heart sore as your pastor. And I thought, what a healthy, needed display of affection in the day that we live in, in such a perverted day. People need that kind of encouragement. Remember, in the first century, many of God's people had been ostracized and excluded from their own families. And the only hug, the only kind expression and affection they would find would be in the family of God. And God made us that way with the need to love and to be loved. I mean, when a child is born, he's not put in some kind of a glass cage where some machine dispenses food. He, he's brought into the mother's arm and up to her breast and she feeds him. And he's held and he's loved and he's cared for. 
And people need that affection. I hug and kiss my kids to this day. My, my oldest son, I can't believe how old he is. He's 33 years old. I still hug him and I kiss him. And I show him that affection. We all need that. And we need it especially in a day where there is so much touch that's perverted or violent or just downright immoral. And I'm not totally surprised by that because God tells us that as we move to the end of the age, as sin increases, as men's hearts will grow cold, that this would be one of the marks of the end of the age, of the last of the last days. In describing that time frame, Paul said, for men, people will be lovers of, of, their, own, will be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, and then he says, without natural affection. That's why we see parents killing their kids and kids killing their parents. That's why we see the perversion of homosexuality in our day. That's why we see even physical touch being done in a perverted way. And so Paul ends this section by reminding us that it's biblical to touch, even to kiss. Now, before I'm done, some of you teenagers, just hold on. I know you may want to claim this as your life first. Pastor, I'm just obeying the Bible, doing the will of God. We'll come to it and we'll look at it in a moment in its historical setting. But before we dig into the finer points, let me make some general observations this morning by way of introduction. First, I counted this week 27 different people who are mentioned by name. 27 personal names in 15 verses. In addition, Paul greets a number of unnamed saints in several churches that were meeting in different homes. You say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, among other things, it tells me that in order for Paul to be a soul winner, he had to be a friend maker. He had to be kind to people. He had to care about people. He didn't live an isolated life. He was the kind of person who would have been friendly who is willing to, to make friends. Solomon wrote, he who, must, he who would want friends must show himself friendly. You say, but pastor, I'm not that kind of person. I'm an introvert. I'm not all that outgoing. Well, you don't have to be. But as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, God makes you other-centered. I, I love to read Christian biographies, and I've read dozens and dozens since I've been a Christian. And I noticed that in all those biographies of men and women that I've read of, one common trait of those people that God was able to use is they cared about people. I've been married just about 35 years to my precious wife, and I've learned a lot about her in the way she deals with people and a lot from her. You know, if you ever see her in a grocery line at Walmart or wherever, you're going to see her talking to people, the people in front of her, behind her. She always uses the uh, clerk's name, asks the clerk how she's doing. Many times she'll say to me, see that clerk, she's having a bad day. I'm going to see if I can change her attitude. And it's fun to watch her go to work. We, we go to Costco about every six or seven weeks, not very often. We go into that store and there's three or four clerks who know her. It's like they've been best friends their whole life. Do you care about people? You are an ambassador for Christ if you've been saved. But how are you representing him? What impression do people have of you? Would you be ashamed for someone to know this week the way you dealt with them or treated them that you were a Christian or that you were a member of Community Bible Church? 
See, one element of Paul's life is he was a friend maker. He genuinely cared for people. People say, well, when the Lord means the most to you, then people will not mean anything to you. I've heard that many times. The Bible teaches just the opposite. When God means everything to you, people will mean everything to you. There's no place in the Word of God for the seclusion of a monk. Paul had never been to the city of Rome since his conversion. And yet he knows all these people who are believers. He had traveled extensively on his mission journeys. He had met a lot of people, many of whom migrated to Rome, which was really the capital of the world. Rome in the first century is what D.C. is to our nation. Now, there's a second observation I'd like to make by way of introduction. Not only are there 27 names that are given, there are 21 titles that are associated with these people. These are not just cattle herded into a pen. These are people with definite descriptions. And many of these titles tells me that Paul had a personal interest in these people. Let me give you a sampling. Uh, For instance, in verse 1, he refers here to Phoebe as our sister, a servant of the church. In verse 5, he refers to Epinetus as my beloved, while referring to Adronicus and Junius down in verse 7 as kinsmen, as fellow prisoners. Look at verse 9, he calls uh, Urbanus his fellow worker. Notice verse 13, he he designates Rufus as a choice man in the Lord. 21 different titles giving, showing that Paul had a personal interest in these people. Now, there's a third general observation that I would like to make. As you read through this section of Scripture, on 19 different times, he says that you are to greet or commend some person. Greet this one, greet that one, commend this person, commend that person. And then he finished this section by saying, greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. How do we apply that text today? Well, among other things, again, there was a warmth. There was an expression of care in the early church. In fact, greeting each other with a kiss in one time in human history became a formal part of the service, just like the welcome every week is a formal part of the service. At the Lord's table, Justin Martyr wrote in 147 AD in his first apology, when we have completed the prayers over the Lord's Supper, we salute one another with a kiss. Now, as time passed, it went from kissing each other to kissing the communion cup. And in the centuries that would follow, when Roman Catholicism was established, the practice was expanded to kissing other objects like crucifixes and statues and very often the the rings of popes and, and bishops. Today in the West, there's virtually no kiss at all. But in Bible times, the practice of embracing and greeting one another with a kiss was common. Now, there was nothing romantic about it, nothing erotic, nothing sexual. Again, remember, and it's true of some people who come here. Some people are are single, they've lost their spouse, they've been sometimes divorced against their will. I, I just met with a brother and his whole family has rejected him because he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And he stayed in my home with my sister and a few of my nieces for a few days. And for some people, the only warmth, the only embrace they will get is from another brother or sister in Christ. Now, the emphasis, it's emphatic, is on a holy kiss. 
Let me read you some other passages. 1 Corinthians 16, 20. There Paul said, All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. In 2 Corinthians 13, he said, Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. In Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica, he said, Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Peter wrote in his first epistle, the fifth chapter, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you who are in Christ. Hold your finger here, would you, and turn to the left to the Gospel of Luke, and turn to Luke chapter 7 for just a moment. Would you, Luke the seventh chapter. Luke is uh, very important, obviously, to the New Testament. Dr. Luke wrote not only the Gospel of Luke, but the book of Acts. Many Christians don't realize it, but Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other single writer because his two books combined were longer than all of the epistles of Paul that he penned. And here in uh, Luke chapter 7, in verse 37, we are introduced to a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now, her sin is not named, but we get the impression that she was a woman of the streets, that she had a bad reputation. Let's pick it up in verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, this woman, weeping, she began to wet his feet, with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. And if you remember, Simon, the unbelieving Pharisee, responded, if this man were a prophet, he would know who or what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And if you remember, then Jesus told a parable to Simon and to his guests. Look at verse 40. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher, say it, rabbi. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said, you have judged correctly. And then the Lord Jesus addresses Simon specifically. Verse 44, turning toward the woman... He said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since the time I came in has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven for she loved much, but he was forgiven little loves little. Of course, she loved the Lord Jesus much because she had been forgiven much. And Simon's problem was a problem of blindness. He couldn't see himself. He couldn't see the woman. He couldn't see the Lord Jesus. He could quickly say, she's a sinner. But he couldn't say, I'm a sinner. And by the way, you do not have to have committed the gravest of sins to love Christ much. All you have to do is have a proper perspective of who God is and who you are. And the Bible is not the amount of sin, it's the awareness of sin. Was this man a sinner? Simon, of course he was. He was as bankrupt as she was. The only problem was is that her sins were visible, his were hidden. She was guilty of sins of the flesh. He was guilty of sins of the spirit. Both of them were equally sinners. Both of them were equally in need. Both of them were bankrupt and could not pay for their own sin unless they would pay it forever in a place called hell. But my point is, 
in going to this passage is not only did the Lord commend her for kissing his feet, but he also reminded Simon that he had neglected to show the Lord Jesus some basic hospitality. And included among that was a a greeting with a kiss. And so I learned from Luke 7 and from other passages in the New Testament that a common expression of greeting and affection in the first century was a holy kiss. Again, nothing passionate, nothing fleshly, a holy kiss. And so the question becomes, how do we apply this today? We're to be all things to all men. Uh, J.B. Phillips, the first one to write a paraphrased translation in England in the 1950s, rendered this verse, give each other a hearty handshake all around for my sake. However you want to translate it, here's the point. The principle is binding. The cultural expression might change. Years ago, over 20 years ago, uh, we had a missionary, one of our missionaries who came here from Poland, and uh, she wanted to help us understand the adjustment she made as an American when she moved from the States to Poland to minister to the Polish people. And she said, you know, this is one of the first times wherever I went, I had to kiss people. Whenever you greeted someone, you kissed them on the cheek. Didn't matter who they were. And so she said, I want you to get a feel of the kind of adjustment that we have to make. So she asked all the people there in that Wednesday night service, I want you to find someone who's not a member of your family, of the same sex, and I want you to go kiss them on each cheek. I want you to empathize with me and what I have to go through. I want you to see the kind of adjustments we make as missionaries. Well, most of the guys like myself, I said, I think I'll empathize from afar. Uh, you know, the Bible says, be all things to all men. Uh, we might paraphrase that with the modern, modern idiom, when in Rome, do as the Romans. Well, I figured I wasn't in Rome, so I wasn't going to do it. But what I want you to see that I don't want you to miss is that there was a kindness, there was an affection, there was a warmth here in the early church. Now, those are all by way of introduction. Paul now gives us a snapshot, a picture of the church, and he highlights at least three principles. You may want to jot these down for further reflection there in your bulletin. Number one, God's church is to serve his people. God's people, God's church, are to serve his people. If God has called us to be anything, he's called us to be servants. Jesus, when his disciples were in a discussion over who is the greatest, he says, it's not to be this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you, let him be the servant. Let him be your servant. You see it up here on the screen? You see the word servant? It's the Greek word diakonos. Here, he writes in Romans 16.1, the apostle, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant. Same word, different ending because it's a case language where endings change, diakonon. Even if you don't read Greek, you can see it's basically the same word. She is a servant of the church, which is in Sancria. Same word. See, the word just meant a servant. And so, Some of the translations, a few of them, in fact, just three or maybe four major English translations do not render this verse a servant of the church, but a deacon of the church, a deacon of the church. Uh, Today's New International Version does it, the TNIV. Uh, The New Living Letters do it, uh, which was done by a group of people. Not really, it's not really a uh, version. It's what we call a translation, the 
NLT. There's a difference between a version and a translation. The King James Version, the New American Standard Version, it's done by a group of scholars, anywhere from sometimes 70 to a few hundred who are involved in the translation of the Bible from the original to the receptor language. A translation is done like the original Living Bible or the Phillips by one person or sometimes just a handful of people. So the NLT does it that way, the, uh, not the RSV, but the new RSV, which if you ever go into a very liberal church, they always use the new RSV and for a reason. Uh, the TNIV, today's New International Version, which was a gender-neutral Bible. And then the new new NIV, the NIV came out in, uh, originally in the 80s, and so now when you go and buy a new NIV, not the TNIV, but a new NIV, since 2010 when they p- completed that translation, came out in paper in 2011, you're getting a blend between the NIV 84, and many times you'll hear me quote the NIV 84, why? Because I want you to understand that I'm not endorsing the new NIV, because that's a blend between the old NIV and the TNIV. And there are translations that, again, 99% of it would change nothing. They're very pure. But there's a few verses because of some theological presuppositions that they take to the text that they bias the text with. But all the other translations, the old NIV, the RSV, the ESV, the King James Version, the New King James Version, the New American Standard, the Southern Baptist Holman Christian Standard Bible, the, the New English or the Net Bible as we call it, they all translate it, not deacon, but servant. Well, what's in the original? Deacon. But why do they do that? Well, in many languages of the world, you know, people, um, they don't read Greek or Hebrew And so they're reading what's done by a group of translators who are very faithful to the original. Some of the translations I just mentioned, they are superb, superb translations. In some languages of the world, uh, they don't distinguish between servant and deacon. It always says deacon. So for instance, when I'm in Eastern Europe, all the Slavic languages of the world, when you come to Romans 16, it just says deacon. And in your mind... You have to supply, is this capital D deacon or is this small letter D? So Jesus said here, he that would be great among you, let him be the servant or the deacon of all. That's the way most languages would read it. They have the same word. And in your mind, you have to supply, is he speaking specifically about the office or is he just speaking about someone who is a servant? So what's going on here? Because this is a hot verse and that's why I'm running down this rabbit trail. Because people want women pastors in the church, they want women deacons in the church. But is that really what this text is saying? Understand, like in this verse I just quoted from Mark, there are 25 other instances in the New Testament where no one debates that the word deacon just means a servant. It's not capital D referring to the office, but small letter D referring to someone who is simply a servant. Although the office of deacon is limited to certain qualified individuals, as Christians, we ought to be servants of one another. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app, available for smartphones and tablets, or listen online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478 
and requesting program ROM72, entitled Snapshot of God's Church. You can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or by giving online at searchthescriptures.org as well as on the STS app. Your generous donation plays a vital role in providing biblical teaching and in helping to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow we continue our look at a snapshot of God's church. Join us then as we search the scriptures. Mm -hmm.